Greetings, troubled listeners. Welcome back to the Troubled Men podcast. I am Renee Komen, back once again in my safe house, on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times, and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. Hey, man, what's happening? Oh, I'm, I'm doing well, man. Uh, very busy. Busy week, uh, tying up a lot of loose ends, uh, getting the last terrific podcast out with, uh, with John Langford from the Mekons. That was a great one. Um, and uh, uh, preparing to go on the road with the Iguanas for the first time in uh, 18 months, leaving uh, next Tuesday. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm tying up everything here, and it's uh, uh, right on and time. And you feel safe about that? Well, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's an interesting point, Manny, because, uh, of course, you know, we, we had been making such progress. Everybody's getting vaccinated, or, or many people getting vaccinated. Numbers are going down. And, uh, but then here we go. Uh, the, the unvaccinated are, are causing a, a fourth surge, fourth COVID surge. And uh, just as I'm about to, to go out of town. Now, you know, one thing in my favor is Louisiana is leading the way in, uh, in, in COVID uh, uh, infections. So yeah. almost anywhere I go outside of Louisiana is safer than I am here. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's true. So well, you know, I, uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, be careful. You know, wear oh, your mask. Wear yeah, your yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're we're mostly going to be just the band. Uh, you know, in, in the van with the four of us, we're all vaccinated. We're all pretty careful. You know, when we go places, of course, inside we'll have to be wearing masks. Um, a, a lot of our gigs are on this trip are outdoors, fortunately. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, a lot of our fans are smart enough to, uh, to get the vaccine. You know, it's, it's a, there, there's this whole thing I've been hearing about how uh, this, this latest surge is uh, it's, a, it's an epidemic of the, of the unvaccinated, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And I think, well, well that's great. You know, you guys, it's, it's, it's your prerogative to kill yourselves. But at the same time, you're going to kill the economy again. You know, so yeah. and and I think there's a lot of crossover. But well, they said, you know, demographically, there's a lot of crossover between people that aren't getting vaccinated and people that were screaming and hollering for the economy to open back up again. And I think, well, how do you not see the connection between uh, suppressing the the virus and being able to stay open? I mean, talk about bad for business. You know, a forced surge couldn't. You know, what could be worse for business than than yet another? Well, those those people you're talking about, those are the forty percent of idiots who just don't understand. You right. Know, it's it's all good. You know, do this and you'll get by. I, I just don't understand that the, the the people clinging to this to this uh, non-science thing, you know, where it's like the guy with the orange hair told us it was bad and we're going to cling to this. Right. You know, it's just like, come on, man. You know, and, get it together. And, know? and like I said, they, they see the, whatever they believe as far as, uh, you know, whether COVID is real, it's a hoax. Uh, the, the, the vaccine is a hoax or whatever. For sure, businesses are going to close. Are going to be closing down again. It is going to yeah. cripple the economy again. That there's no two ways about that. So, right. you know, just 
the, that is the environment we're in. If these people want to keep everything open, have everything open up again, which I believe they do, that this is the path. This is what we have to do. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's frustrating. Sad. You know, I, I I'm uh, I'm gonna I'm very curious about the, what the next four to six weeks brings because you know I work at the local university, the big university, and, and they're planning on opening a hundred percent and. I I don't know, but I, I you know what it's like whatever you know I wear my mask, I do my thing, but you know I I just came from you know a campaign meeting with one of my campaign managers. Okay, I'm down to one. Really, the other <laughs> the other two are uh, uh, very ill right now, but not from COVID. They're just old. Okay, and um, <laughs> and um, um, and it was a great campaign meeting. Uh, we came up with some great ideas, and um, I can't put them out just yet, but I just want to say that, you know, I come back from campaign meetings, and uh, I'm a little lit up right now, so I yeah. can say anything. <laughs> yeah. But also, my campaign meeting was in, like, your neighborhood, mm-hmm. and I, it took me the fucking street shit they're doing in your neighborhood i know it took me 25 (laughs) minutes just to find claiborne avenue Uh, from oak street uh, i mean it was just insanity oh yeah and 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 i don't get it and this this became part of a campaign uh, uh issue is like you know you start work on a street i think this happens in every city they come in there, they dig up your street, and then they leave. Yeah, yeah. They leave for months or weeks or years. But it's worse here in New Orleans because the streets are already so bad. Right. So when they dig up a street trying to say, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna fix this street. And I, I just don't know how you live in that area. I, it must be. You, you have off-street parking and you have a driveway, which you're fortunate but so many people down there don't have it. And, I mean, I was driving over roads. I was going down from Snake and Jake's trying to find Claiborne, the smoothest way to Claiborne, mm-hmm. and it took me 25 fucking minutes because I had to drive so slow because the streets are so bad. And if they weren't bad, they were under construction, and I had to, like, you know, they're do closed. a detour. Right. Yeah, they're closed and stuff. And... I have a feeling it's going to start in my neighborhood sometime soon, but I, I don't know. But it it's seems, crazy. It seems like they must have like a one one five man crew, uh, because if you drove around today, now did you see any workers anywhere? No, because it was no. after four o'clock. Well, and, at, at three o'clock at, at noon, you wouldn't have seen any workers either, <laughs> unless there was a new spot that they had to tear up. Um, because they're not finishing any spots. They're just creating more uh, ga- gaping know, wounds. I don't understand the logic in it. Why do you start, you know, why do you, it's like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make a movie. And I got, I wrote it and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to cast it and all that kind of stuff. And then once I start, I'll be like, eh, we're not going to film for another year. Right. You know, <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's like they tear up the street. I don't understand the logic. It's like you start something, 
finish it. Yep. Well, that's that's a good campaign. Uh, uh, well, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, my point. my big thing right now because I had a big meeting today is mm-hmm. like you know you keep voting for the same, you're going to keep getting the same, and and that's a big issue, and and uh, and. It just pisses me off so much. Yeah, you uh, got to go right right at her, man. You got to. I'm telling yeah, you, gotta go right I mean, right uh, at at, uh, at right Mayor Right at the throat. Yeah, I got to go for the throat. Yeah, you got to you got to put those issues up up front and center. You know, don't let her don't let her uh, uh, squirm out of them. You know, because uh, yeah, you know, I, you know, I uh, there's a lot of things I could say about Latoya that are great, but I can't think of any of them. Okay, well, <laughs> well, that's that's not your job. Uh, that's that's her job to say all the nice yeah. things, or her her yeah. supporters to say the nice things. It's your job to point out yeah. the flaws, uh, and, and yeah, you know, know, if 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 not because you will actually get the chance to uh, to replace her, which I hope you do. But even if you don't, just the act of you putting pressure on on some of these issues may uh, may stir her to well, action. That's that's been the whole point the last 20 years is just to to have them focus on something just like uh uh what's his name jonah who who was a cripple who ran for mayor against landrew and his whole focal you know focal point was getting the streetcars handicap friendly right and he got it done yes he didn't win he he got like 80 votes but right he won, he won in that way because the one issue he ran on was making it, and the poor kid died. You know, yeah, you know, that was, that's a, a real tragedy, man. He was yeah. a much beloved Jonah Baskell. Um, yeah, Jonah Baskell. Yeah, he but, was a good kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great kid. Um, but and but but look at all the good he did. All all the uh, the the people with disabilities that that he is still um, helping. You know, the, his actions are you know allowing them to use public transportation. You know, get up and down sidewalks and curbs and all that so man talk right. about you know so i'm thinking of like running on my main issue is uh prickly heat <laughs> which is uh, a big issue for lots of our people here in uh, new orleans okay prickly heat okay i didn't see that one coming man yeah but, uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's, that's a new one that's good okay yeah uh prickly heat is also has always bothered me as an issue. no what's what's the what's the solution to that is it a is a gold bond powder or uh I don't I know. Think, uh, like uh, like that one woman told me that Robitussin cures everything. So maybe it's <laughs> Robitussin. Some woman, some woman I met on the streetcar actually. She said Robitussin cures. Well, everything. you know, if you drink enough Robitussin, I didn't realize yeah. this until a few years ago. But but even the non-narcotic uh, type of uh, cough syrup, a lot of people will drink that to excess. And it, yeah. it gets them, it's like a dissociative. It gets them high in a way where they kind of lose themselves. You know, you can kind of yeah. fall down a, an identity hole. And uh, so, so yeah, you know, you could possibly drink enough Robitussin to, to not think you have any to problems. To cure the prickly heat. Well, to, to make you yeah. forget about the prickly heat. Yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, it's, it's, it's fun. But listen, we, mm-hmm. uh, I had this meeting and uh, we're talking about the issues and uh, nothing really got resolved. And But I, I want to talk about something. I don't know if I brought this up last week, but did you uh, – I, I saw this documentary on uh, Hulu channel uh, with Paul McCartney. Did you see this I thing? did see it. Terrific, huh? Well, I, I, uh, I was watching it and I thought it was great. Yes. Uh, I didn't know – I thought – why is Paul McCartney 
doing a documentary with a homeless person. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, and it's like, what the hell does this homeless person have to do with anything that Paul McCartney has to talk about? Right. And then, of course, I realized it was Rick Rubin. Right, 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 right. Yeah, he's there in uh, like uh, like some flip flops and shorts and uh, yeah, the beard. Oh, no, he was actually barefooted. Barefoot, okay. Uh, and he's kicked- squatting like sitting Indian style on the floor while McCartney's in a chair and a suit and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sitting to myself, and my wife and I are watching, and my wife keeps going, "Who is this person?" And I go, <laughs> "I have no idea who this person is." You didn't even recognize him. <laughs> That's yeah, so funny. I just thought I thought it was you know we were in L.A. a couple of months ago. I thought it was maybe some of the, some homeless person who got a gig. You know, right, someone. right. But uh, it's a terrific show, don't you think? I mean, just to to have uh, so for those who haven't seen it, it's I think it's called McCartney three two one or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And, I, and it's the two of them uh, in a studio in front of a mixing board, and they're they're listening to. Uh, I didn't care for the black and white, and I did not care for the uh, the tracking shots. I just thought if you're going to do a, a documentary like that where two guys are talking, just have a handheld camera and just film them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, you look at the end credits; they're both executive producers on it, so. Um, you know, whatever. Um, and I also thought that um, uh, the tracks that they listened to were some of them were like, okay, well, that's very interesting about the talk. And 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 and, and the homeless guy was very enthusiastic about some <laughs> of the tracks. But then there were some tracks that was like, oh, really? You chose this one to listen to this track 18 or, or whatever? I just didn't get it. But as, as a whole, it was very entertaining. Yeah, and uh, I just you know I have a bet with a couple of local people here who I won't name. I still have this bet that's been going on for about twenty years that Ringo is going to outlive Paul. Uh, you know, it's going to be sad when 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 any of those guys go. Man, it's a it's a whole bunch of of, uh, of great musical icons that are that are definitely getting up in age, man. And uh, Yeah, but the bet is, the people I bet against, they all think Paul is so charmed. He's had such a charmed life that he's going to live for, you know, a long time. Where I say, well, you know what, Ringo, Ringo, he's pretty good. Pretty charmed he, life, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, so. he, uh, you know, he had his days, and he's still married with the same woman, Barbara Bach, right. since the late 70s, and I, I give, I'm betting on Ringo. Okay, well, it's yeah. uh, you okay. know, Paul's been Sir Paul, they never got Paul, uh, Ringo a Sir title, hmm. you know, he's not, you know, the Queen hasn't said Sir Ringo, yeah, well, ne- neither, has, ne- neither has Keith, so uh, you know, that that's cool. Oh, Keith doesn't want it, right? Man. Right, well, maybe Ringo doesn't yeah. either, I don't know, he, he might have turned it down, perhaps. Who knows? I don't know. I well, you know, no. speaking of, of deaths, we did lose a, a, a giant of American music, mm. uh, Dusty Hill, from from the bass player from ZZ Top, just passed yeah, away. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. Now that's yeah. a guy. You know, for the that's a band that had the same three members for over fifty years. And as a kid, I remember thinking, well, God, that guy really isn't doing too much, you know, n- not really understanding the, the depth of what was going on. Now, I've certainly come to realize, you know, the way that rhythm section played together, they could get away with just having the, the, the three of them 
and and it sounded really full because of the 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 kind of uh, groove that 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 those guys played, where it just sat there and sounded so fat. Even though you know he didn't have to to play a million notes, he just just the thing was just had such gravity to it. You know, it, it uh, so it's really a, a tremendous loss uh, in, for the music community. Uh, I never was a Z. I mean, I like ZZ Top, but I. You know, they when the eighties rolled around, they had these huge hits. They got like a rebirth because of music videos, and I always, I always thought there was a drum machine going on. Well, there definitely was a drum machine on a lot yeah. of those eighties things. Yeah, they have the yeah. somebody as Chuck Prophet would say, the Duggada Duggadas. You know, they don't, every song would have Duggada 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 Duggada. Yeah, have that that uh, sequencer churning away in the background, and yeah, those were you know MTV style productions and and you know pop radio productions but the band could always play you know you could always put those three guys up on a stage and 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 play and it and and it would just sound big as a house man and great tone and great time and feel so so yeah i, I like that song about sunglasses i thought that was okay i like that one uh, uh uh about uh jesus left chicago that was that was that was the one i always liked but they had so many great songs man jesus is left everywhere yeah 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 yeah. i think they were, weren't talking about uh uh jesus christ they were talking about uh maybe a guy named jesus or something but uh, uh all right i don't know yeah anyway. well uh manny uh i think we've been going on for a good long time here can we get our guest in the in the mix here sure yeah he's exciting to me yeah 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 <laughs> so uh um, he's a, a fantastic guest. I've, I've, I've known him for a bunch of years. He uh, comes from Long Island, but he's been living in New Orleans for a while. He's a terrific piano player, organist, composer, recording artist. Uh, spent a long tenure with the blues uh, icon Clarence Gatemouth Brown in his band. Uh, he currently plays in uh, multi-platinum blues superstar Kenny Wayne Shepherd's band. Uh, and 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 our guest has a he's a band leader has a whole bunch of groups of his own we'll get into all that uh, but without further ado the great Mr. Joe Crown welcome Joe hey how y'all doing good man oh we're fine Joe I've how been enjoying you? I've been enjoying listening to you guys go on about the virus and all these rock stars and everything you know <laughs> <laughs> you know Joe uh, I don't know if you know this but we worked together. Many years ago. <clears throat> what, what? Please remind me of what we did. Okay. Uh, uh, it, I think it was like 2002 or 2003. Uh, it was a uh, one of those uh, dinner murder mystery shows hmm. on on the Riverboat hmm. Casino, way out there on the river, and and I don't know where it was, uh, wherever the Riverboat Casinos are, and. I got hired to play a character on this dinner mystery, murder mystery theater show, and you were. Was I playing organ on that? Yeah, I think you were. Yes. Yeah, just yes. by myself. Yes, it was you. You were the only musical <laughs> person there. I remember just, that. I yeah, remember. and 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 I was supposed to be the lounge singer for this dinner theater, and I get killed later on. But I sing a song hmm. before all the clues start happening more clues and and i said the only lounge song i know from beginning to end is uh under my skin the sinatra song right right and you knew that song <laughs> and we had no time to rehearse yeah and and 
there's, you know, 40 tables of people eating dinner and <laughs> my cue comes up, man, he starts singing and, and I start singing that song. I got you under my skin. And during the song, I get shot. <laughs> I get oh, shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this. Do you remember this? Yes, I do. And I was told to like uh, stretch my death scene. So <laughs> I get shot. And no one knows where the shot comes from. And I go table to table going, I'm shot. And I'm giving, I guess I, I'm giving out clues on what, you know, maybe who shot me. But at the same time, I'm saying, oh, God, I go to this one table and I go, oh, are you going to eat that? Because I'm really hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and you're, the whole time you're doing that kind of like crazy organ music, like dun-dun-dun, yeah. dun-dun-dun. Yeah. I they, forget. I forget the casino, but it was on the river. Okay. And my death scene took about five to seven minutes. Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, no, because I went from table to table, you know, dying. Right. You're and really then finally, it. yeah, and I had to go back to where Joe was playing piano, which was right, right by the exit doors. And then I flop myself dead, and then the, another actor comes on and starts, you know, continuing the story. And while the other actor is acting, I slowly get up and leave. Okay. You know? But nice. you know what, the Joe, I don't know if you know this, uh, before the show, I was told to go and uh, talk to all the patrons. And one of the people having dinner was an old NFL football star from the Los Angeles Rams in the 70s, Lawrence McCutcheon. Oh, I remember I that name, yeah. Yeah, Lawrence McCutcheon. He was an L.A. Rams football player in the 70s. And he was just like like a paid customer. He was a paid Yeah, he was a paid customer wow. eating dinner. And apparently whoever solved the mystery got like, you know, 100 free slots. You know, that kind oh, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was a weird gig because like, you know, they called me up to play it and they said they wanted some like mood music. And I was oh. like, well, what is what does that mean? You know, I mean, what right. do you do for mu- mood music? And they just said, well, you know, just like play suspenseful stuff. And it 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 was just kind of weird because there was no direction, there was yeah. nothing specific. I actually didn't really play like a like many songs per se. I just played like a lot of tension chords and like you right. Know. It was like a horror film. It was like yeah. a horror film. Dun, 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 dun. Exactly. Yeah, you, all that it, kind of stuff. It was that like for the whole time, you know. So I yeah, mean, <laughs> yeah, because when I got there, they said, "Well, you're a lounge, you're a lounge singer, and you're gonna get murdered, but you need to sing a song." I was like, "Fuck!" The only real lounge song I know from beginning to end is, uh, you know, "Under My Skin," you know, and and you knew it, you knew yeah, it, yeah. and uh, it was a fun gig. It was a good paying gig, and in fact, I think all the actors got twenty five free chips. Oh, play. yeah. Yeah. I love it. We're conne- making more connections here, connections we didn't even know existed on the, on the Trouble Men podcast. Well, so Joe, t- uh, as I said, you're, you're not from New Orleans. You're from Long Island, I believe, right? I grew up in uh, Long Island, yeah. Okay. Were you supposed to be a dentist? <laughs> uh, not a dentist, but I was supposed to like be like an electrical engineer. Actually. <laughs> okay. All right. There's, uh, you know... Uh, growing up, I, I'm uh, I'm 63 now, 
So when I was growing up, I was in the 60s and 70s. And yeah. back then, you know, musicians were like, they were outlaws almost, you know. I mean, they that was not a career that you would, you know, come up from a middle class family on Long Island, a nice Jewish middle class family. They don't want you to become a musician. And, you know, the whole thing was like, you have to have the fallback career. You could play music on the side. Right. And, you know, so I went to college in at a state university in New York as far away as I could, which was Buffalo, New York. And I was studying electrical engineering and I dropped out in my fifth semester and joined a band and moved to Boston. Oh, <laughs> yeah. The, the and band, what band was this? It was just uh, what kind of band was this? Um, it was like like a jazz fusion band. And we lasted for about a year or so. And then I floundered around in anything that would pay, you know, um, doing any kind of lounge gigs that I could. And eventually I started my own band with my first wife, which was like a Motown cover band. And um, we, we had some success, you know. This was we, in Boston? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we had some success. We weren't like a real big draw, but we played a lot of parties and we played some clubs and stuff. And how do you, you know, like Boston as a city? I never cared for Boston. It's cold. Well, Very cold. I think the, a lot of the people are cold, too. It just, uh, you're right about that. You know, um, it's, you know, in the Northeast, you know, I mean, I find it that in general that it's not as welcoming as it is in the South. Southern hospitality, there is truth to that that phrase. Because um, right. both times I've been to Boston, I got in fights. <laughs> with people who just you know it was like that star wars scene i don't like your face didn't yeah. like, well, that, didn't like your, the look of you right yeah or, didn't like don't talk don't talk sports at all with anybody from boston oh, because well, I, they're like they're maniacs when it comes to that yeah, you know? yeah. um you know the celtics the bruins the, the red Sox, yeah, no 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 oh, i'm you know. a you know i'm a i'm from los angeles so i'm like a dodger lakers fan you know so can't talk to them about it at yeah. all. No, no, no. And I mean, I, I, I had gone to basketball games mostly. I, I used to go to Red Sox games sometimes, but I, I went to Bass Celtics games. And in the eighties, that was when they were great. Larry Bird and it was Magic oh. Johnson and Michael Jordan. I saw him play live a few times. You know, I mean, he oh, was, oh yeah. I mean, he was killer. Nice. <clears throat> but anyway, I, I lived in Boston until about ninety one, and then I moved down to New Orleans at that point. I joined Gate Mouse Band, and I, I moved down here. So, Joe, you were already into, like, uh, New Orleans-style piano and the blues oh, yeah. and stuff? Well, um, <clears throat> after the, the band with my first wife broke up, I, I went on the road with a guy named Luther Guitar Jr. Johnson. Okay. And um, he was uh, an alumni of the, of the last great Muddy Waters band from the 70s. Um, nice. Yeah, and I mean, he was like strict, straight up West Side Chicago blues. And one thing about playing music in Boston is everybody up there is fanatical about like, like studying the styles. So if you're going to play like in a blues band with like an authentic guy, you have to study the style and you have to be authentic about it. You have to learn about like all the piano players and who they listen to. And if you're going to play organ, you have to learn about all the organ players and who they listen to. And if you're going to play like anything New Orleans, like because I was in, in the Motown cover band, 
I was starting to do New Orleans stuff and they were like, you know, you really got to listen to long hair and, and, you know, and the meters and like, all, you know, there was like this whole thing about like, you have to study everything. And, the, and, you know, New England has produced some great, great, like really authentic blues players. I mean, uh, you know, the room full of blues and Duke Robillard and Ronnie Earl. I mean, right. that, that whole like circle of players are, they're phenomenal players. And, you know, there was this big connection between Boston the Boston blues scene and the Austin blues scene. Um, you know, the guys in, um, you know, the Thunderbirds and Duke and Ronnie, they all knew each other. And, you know, there was a whole thing with, with rounder records going on and blacktop. And a lot of the players that were like the house players for blacktop and rounder that were doing things in new Orleans were come half of them were coming out of new England. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, Ronnie Earl and his band, you know, the rhythm section, Mudcat and Pear, they were they were on countless blacktop records. Ron Levy, he was a New England guy. He was out of Boston. He was married to uh, Marion, who was the who owned Rounder Records, you know, and he had his own label, uh, Bullseye, at that time, Bullseye Blues. But anyway, you know, I mean, it was a there was a big thing, big emphasis on really understanding the styles, and that's you know. So important, man. So important. So many people think, oh, the blues is easy. It's like, really? You think you think it's yeah. easy? I mean, yeah. it's easy to tell you what the chords are, but to play it is a whole different thing. That's not the, that's not the music. I, I was really surprised how little people down here really pay attention to that kind of stuff, you know? Um, yeah. and, and it's it's not funny, but it's like the, the, um, most of the players that play like in the um, – uh, authentic New Orleans piano style, like the Dr. John style, mm. are not from New Orleans, like John Cleary, Tom McDermott, Josh Paxton. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not people, Tom Orwell, they didn't grow up in New Orleans, you know, and they're really great at playing the, the styles of long hair and Tucson and Booker and Fats and all, you know, they have a real nice feel for that. And the guys that come up down here really don't pay that much attention to it, you know. Take it for and, granted. And, you know, I see it all over the world, too. I, you know, I traveled over Europe where they have, like, incredible boogie-woogie piano players that play with, like, I mean, you shut your eyes and you and you, you really feel like you're listening to someone that was playing, you know, like Albert Ammons or Meadlux Lewis or one of the authentic, really early, like, you know, boogie, boogie players. They studied it so hard. You know, and they, they really cop it like really heavily. I mean, it's it's kind of scary. You know, yeah. I go over there to do these these piano festivals and the, all these guys are lining up playing this like like crushing boogie woogie stuff. And I'm <laughs> like, OK, I'll play Tipitina. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Nice, nice. Well, so so you go out on the road with 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 Gatemouth and you're out with them for for a bunch of years. That must have been an incredible experience, huh? Uh, it definitely, uh, you know, had its had its moments. You know, I mean, <laughs> there were there were great musical moments. There were great show moments. Um, I, I was with him for the last fourteen years of his life. And um, what about the backstage moments? Were there any of those? Well, you know, you think that there's like, you know, you hear the stories about the backstage stuff with all the crazy drugs, sex, and all that, but. It wasn't that way for us, you know. Right. It never has been that way for me. It was like right. Well, but what know. about for Gatemouth? Was there anything? No, like no. His 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 whole thing was he smoked a lot of weed. 
I was going to say he, he could be very cantankerous at times. And then the other, he always had that, that pipe that he would uh, mix tobacco oh, yeah. and weed. Oh, yeah. And he would walk around everywhere with smoking this. And everybody's looking around going, who's smoking weed? And, and, yeah. and Gates acting like, oh, no, it's not me. This is just my tobacco and my pipe. And it's like, Gate, everybody can smell it. You're not <laughs> fooling anybody. Oh, yeah. And back, uh, obviously, back in the 90s and the early 2000s, while he was alive, smoking indoors was acceptable. You know, it wasn't, there were some places that it wasn't, but you right. could, you know, in bars and stuff, it was, everyone smoked. So he was puffing away everywhere. Right. We had this, we had this one incident. We played this place called The Egg in, in Albany. I don't know if you ever played there with the iguanas, Renee. I don't, but, I don't recall that. It's like a performing arts center. We, we, we've done it a couple of times with Kenny Wayne. Actually, but, um, I may have now that you mention it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it, the building is kind of has an egg shape to it. And it's called The Egg. Um, and there was a whole thing, a, a brouhaha with the promoter and the people from the venue because it was like an outside promoter was doing the show. And the, the, the people from the venue did not want him smoking. It's a no smoking facility. And back mm -hmm. then, that was kind of a rarity. And... Um, Gate was like, well, this is like, I'm like George Burns. You can't tell like, you know, someone <laughs> that's part of the act is to smoke. Uh -huh. you know? And he threw a fit and, and, you know, after we, and in that band, we set up all the gear and broke it down as a band. We, we did all the, you know, setups and breakdowns. Mm -hmm. There was no, we were the crew. Right. So, you know, we, we brought it all in, we set it all up. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, fellas, get ready. We might be packing this up. Gate doesn't want to play unless he can smoke. So there's a bruja and all this stuff. And the, the, the venue people said, okay, he can smoke in the dressing room. He can, and the stage. And that was it. And what we would typically do in a gate mouth show is we come out, we play in a very old school thing was to play a couple of tunes up front. And then you do the whole introduction where the band brings the, the artist out. Right? Mm, right. So we bring him out, we do our little song and you know, he straps the guitar on, he does a whole thing and then he passes a solo. And every time he, as soon as he passes a solo, he goes up and sparks up the pipe. Uh -huh. Well, he sparked up that pipe. He hit a huge pocket of weed <laughs> and he blew this cloud of smoke that was 100% like skunk weed. Yeah. And it filled, yeah. The whole, it filled the whole freaking venue and everybody was like, I mean, we were cracking up on stage. You could see the people <laughs> in the audience were like, they knew what was going on. Right. <laughs> and Gate was just sitting there with a shit eating grin, just smirking away. Yeah, he thought he was fooling somebody. Yeah, it wasn't. Oh, fooling. he didn't care. He didn't right, care. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Why is his name Gate Mouth? Well, the story is is kind of like a secretive story, but I'll share it with you all right now because okay, I know, excellent. I know the true um, origin of Gate of how he got named Gate Mouth. Oh, all right. He stole it. Okay. Oh. Yes, there is. In his very famous biography of Anytime You See It, um, there was a show in uh, Houston that T-Bone was, was booked to play. And T-Bone got sick. T-Bone Burnett? No, Walker. Oh, T-Bone Walker. Okay. The original T-Bone. Yeah. And okay. This is 1947. Oh, and wow. He got sick. He got He, like, left the stage or something. Gatemouth jumps up on the stage, grabs the guitar, steals the show, 
the audience goes wild. They pelt him with, with what they say was $600. We in the band think that's kind of one of those like fish stories where it maybe was like a uh, 40 or 50 bucks. And it, after it was told so many times it increased to 600 right. where it just kind of stopped. Uh-huh. Well, we were playing one year. We were playing this club in Memphis, uh, BB Kings. And, mm-hmm. After we do our sound check and set up, we would always eat some ribs and we're sitting at the table eating our little rib meal, whatever that they serve us at BB Kings and oh, the whole band, Gatemouth, everybody, all six or seven of us, whatever, the road manager, you know, drive bus driver, the whole deal. And in walks a guy and he wants to come over and talk to Gatemouth Brown. He introduces ourselves as Gatemouth Moore. Huh? So we're looking at him and he goes, yeah, Gatemouth Brown stole my name. And we're all sitting there looking with the two Gatemouths. Uh. And Gatemouth Brown is sitting there going, well, fellas, now you know the story. And the guy told us that he was on the bill where where T-Bone got sick. And he didn't make the gig. And the audience thought Clarence Brown was Gatemouth. And that's how he picked up the name Gatemouth. And Don Roby signed him as Clarence Gatemouth Brown. And that's, um, I'm telling you, I heard the story, and the two Gatemouths were standing there in front of me, and Gatemouth Brown acknowledged that that was exactly how it went down. And up to that day, none of us in the band knew about it. No, I don't even, I don't even know if his manager knew about it. And he, when anybody asked him how he got that name, it was something that you have to wait till my, my book comes out. I'm going to do an autobiography. It's all in the book. It's in the book. Oh, okay. And that's how he would shrug it off. But the real right. way is is the old-fashioned way. He stole it. <laughs> right on, right on. Oh. Well, there it you, is. You heard it here first, folks. Well, I, I have a, a good uh, gate mouse story I want to tell real quickly here. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was on this trip. Uh, it was like we were playing uh, the Ascona Jazz Festival or something. It was, oh, yeah, I know that one. It was three bands. <clears throat> I was playing with Juanita Brooks. It was <clears throat> another band and then Gate Mouse Band. We were all traveling together. We all flew over to Bern, Switzerland, and we yeah. were at a, a hotel the, the first night and the first couple of nights before we start uh, traveling around. And uh, I thought, well, you know, we're over here. We're going to be here for 10 days, two weeks or something. I need to... to get some hash or something while I'm, <laughs> while I'm here. So I told the other guys, I was friends with the other guys in Gates Band and all, I thought, well, let me tell them that I'm going to do this so I can get some for them because I don't want to get for me and then have them going, hey, can I have some of yours? So I tell right. them, say, okay, well, a couple of people want something. Then before I go, they say, well, hey, look, Gate wants some. I was like, okay, cool, give me money. So no, Gate wants to go with you. I'm like, oh, jeez. So now Gatemouth, man, he's Gatemouth is like a skinny black guy. And at that time, he was already in his late 60s, I guess. Um, uh, had uh, a cowboy hat with uh, that was covered in sheriff's badges that he had gotten from all these different sheriff's departments that he had visited. It was kind of his thing. He collected them. Yeah. So I'm like okay well i mean we're, we're going to be pretty conspicuous here but it's like okay so me skinny white kid in my 20s and gate you know skinny black guy coat with a hat cowboy hat covered in in uh in in badges go to, to walk down to the uh the central square in in Bern, switzerland and uh we get what? there and i'm scoping it out i'm like look gate i'm gonna walk right down there you wait here okay <laughs> 
this is going to be this is going to be a, a hard enough sell for me to to uh, you know pull this off smoothly. You can watch me. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'll come right back to you. And he's like, okay, all right, we'll come right back. I'm like, where else am I going to go, Gate? So anyway, he, he let me do that, and I went, and it, it was very easy, and uh, you know he was he, he he was happy, but but I just thought, Jesus Christ, what do you think I'm going to do, and 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 do you think it's going to be easier for me to do this with you there? So <laughs> you can you can it, it leaves a good visual picture there. Yeah, yeah, he was he was all about the weed. Let me tell you, man. Right. He he was not a fan of alcohol at all because um, one of his brothers um, uh, died of a young age from alcohol and uh yeah he used to um his youngest brother used to a young uh, age for him was 60 no 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 like like maybe late late 20s early 30s oh wow yeah you got to remember it's like you know he grew up on uh in orange texas and his brother used to drink a lot with lightning hopkins and they both like died like at a young age from just like alcohol poisoning or something Mm. But he hated alcohol. He had a wife that was that, that drank a lot of alcohol, and he just um, was a big like um, uh, he hated and he hated all anything like that. And he was always critical of anybody drinking, you know. And of course, we're in the business when you're playing in bands that are playing in clubs. You're you basically half your business is selling alcohol, you know. So he's around alcohol, and he would always. Anytime anyone had any kind of an alcohol buzz, he, he the the whole thing became about the alcohol buzz. You know, mm. I mean, it just was. He he really hated it, but he smoked a ton of weed, and it got us in some pretty sticky situations from time to time, especially at the Canadian border. Right. <laughs> well, that's funny. I mean, because he's doing an illegal substance, but he hated like a legal substance. Well, yeah, and you know that's basically what it was. You know, I mean, he was, he hated the fact that weed was illegal and and alcohol was legal. And I remember when I first joined the band, the first time I was going into Canada, when we were getting up to the border, the road manager pulled me aside and said, "Don't whatever you do, if Gate offers you, asks you to hold his hat while we go through the border, don't." (laughs) 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 Yeah. So I mean. You know, and and there were issues. You know, we always had the but the dogs on the buses, and we had you know problems getting through because they'd find some sort of residue, and we we clean the bus down so hard, and it's still that they come up with something that would turn the the, the little liquid in the vial the wrong color. You know, I mean, uh-huh. just it it was always a pain in the neck. But like you know, at that time we all smoked weed, and you know it was kind of the culture of being in the gate mouth band. Sure. Well, uh, well, Manny. Speaking of alcohol, unlike Gatemouth, we don't hate alcohol. And in fact, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm looking yeah. at our, at my drink, and it's it's uh, it's it looks like it needs some help. How about you? Yeah, I'm ready to take a break, and and, and the troubled nation knows what to do. So we're we're, we're going to just pause for a second. We'll be right back.
And we're back. Back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet. I am Renee Coleman. Back with our guest, Mr. Joe Crown. Now, Joe, uh, we're back to our original sponsor, which has always been uh, Loose Change. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, for all those people that have loose change in your couch, couch cushions or in your pockets, <laughs> um, you know, we do have a Patreon page. We have a, 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 a cocktail fund uh, link there, the, uh, the, the PayPal account. You know, so, uh, you know, please consider supporting the Troubled Men podcast. Uh, we, we'd love to bring you these fantastic guests every week. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just trying to, to keep all of that rolling. So, uh, yes, uh, cons consider uh, the, the becoming a listener supporter. And, uh, you know, we have uh, s subscribe and, uh, to, to the podcast uh, wherever you listen to podcasts and rate us and review us. Follow us on social media. We have uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram and uh, Twitter. So, Joe, back to you. So, we, we we've last left you. You were in Gate Mouse Band, and you have a good long run there, but somehow you wind up in New Orleans at the end of that. No, no, no. I wound up in New Orleans at the beginning of that. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. I missed that. So, so you're based in New Orleans the whole time you're in, in, in Gate's Band. Okay. Correct. Um, now, s somewhere along the line, you, you, you have a, a, a bunch of groups of your own. You have the Joe Crown organ combo, and you release, I don't know, what, five, six records uh, with, that, with that group? Um, let me think. I think I did four organ combo CDs. One, two. Yeah, four or straight Joe Crown organ combo CDs. Okay. Then I did, I did three CDs that are just solo piano then i did one cd which was like a piano trio and then i did three cds with uh walter wolfman washington and russell batiste jr and then one cd with johnny sanson and john fold right yeah i want to get into some of these trios because the one you just mentioned there uh uh, you know, that's you're kind of the last piece of the puzzle that we're we're putting in place here because uh, you know the that first that trio that you just mentioned uh, Johnny Sansone and and John Fole those are both former guests on the podcast. Okay. So so you're the last piece of the puzzle we're we're putting in place there <laughs> for that band. Um, well, that had to be a, a cool band. Those guys are both great players, and everybody writes and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoy playing with Johnny and John. Um, the whole concept with that was to really kind of have like that back porch, you know, acoustic blues. Um, we didn't want that electric kind of a sound thing. We didn't want a big percussion thing. We just kind of wanted it to be like, you know, what it is, um, piano, uh, guitar, and harmonica, just kind of like, you know, playing acoustically. and. Right. We, I, I, it really got kind of hot there for a minute. I mean, like we were picking up some pretty good steam with it. And then um, John John got hired by the Dr. John Band. And it kind of like took a little wind out of us on that. I mean, I, I was we're all really happy when someone gets the, the golden gig, mm -hmm. as, as we'll call it. You mm -hmm. know, um, Dr. John is one of my biggest heroes and I would could I was nothing but happy for John Fole that he got to play with with Mac for I don't know 10 12 years something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, long and, run. Yeah, he had a great run with him and you know it's as being you know as being a sideman and being a band leader 
whenever you, whenever any one of us gets that, that, that kind of that, that kind of a gig, we're all happy for him. Sure. And we were very happy for John, but it kind of took some of the wind away because we were, you know, we had just recorded a record and we were hoping to do some things. And then John got this, this great gig offer. So, you know, it, this is the way some things go sometimes. And, right. but we, but we still play together and, um, we still have a really good relationship. Uh, Johnny and John, uh, Johnny, Johnny uses John in, in, in Johnny Sansone band. Right. And they do, they go out and do some duo stuff and it all kind of was precipitated by the trio. And, um, you know, they, they do some, a very, a variety of things. And I use John in, in my, um, in my own band, in my own trio. Like I'll be playing a gig with him at the end of August at Dos Jefes with John Fole and a drummer, Aaron Lambert, who, right. is, uh, who I played with in a band called Juice. And, right, uh, right. Well, you know, we joke, we joke about John Fole. Well, it's not a joke. It's the truth that John Fole has subbed for everybody in the Iguanas except for our drummer. <laughs> he's he's sub for for Rod Hodges. He's sub for Joe Cabral, and he's sub for me on bass. So the only the only chair he hasn't covered is is uh, drums from time to time. That's probably that's John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he always sounds great, and he's always fun to be around. I'm playing with him uh, with Lynn Drury on Saturday night. So what, there you yes, go. Yeah. So then the the other trio, one of the other trios you mentioned uh, with uh, Walter Wolfman Washington and Russell Baptiste, you guys had a, a steady Sunday night residency at the Maple Leaf for years, right? We did, and um, about four years ago, I changed it up a little bit. Um, Russell Russell departed from the trio, and I brought in Walter's drummer uh, from the Roadmasters, Wayne Morrow. Right, and that was around two, 2017, where I made some some pretty big changes in my life. At that point, that's when I I um, started playing with Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Oh, okay. And um, Kenny is. Um, He's 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 one of those golden gigs or one of those kind of things like that. Yeah. Um, his, he doesn't play any clubs. It's all concert halls and big venues and buses and road crews and all kinds of things around it that that make it um, very very easy for me to to make. And yeah. um, so you know things things with with um, Walter had kind of changed a little bit. He had some new management and. You know, there was it was getting a little bit tedious trying to keep the trio going, and Russell was kind of like out of the picture. So I put Wayne in there. We kept doing the Sundays and everything, and then uh, COVID hit, and you know, the rest is kind of what it is. You know, <laughs> but I still play with Wayne and Walter, and in fact, we're playing this Saturday night. Um, we played a few weeks ago, and uh, we have little gigs here and there that we've been doing, and. Uh, we did Tipitina's in June or May or something like that, and uh, we're going to do some stuff at, at at Jazz Fest too. So um, nice. The the Jazz Fest set is going to be a little bit different because I've got a new trio that I'm playing with. Um, I I kind of link, linked up with a with a harmonica player named Jason Ricci, and I think you guys know Jason. Yes, well, that's another trio that that uh, again, you are the last piece of the puzzle because both Jason Ricci and and Doug Belote have been on the podcast before. Yeah, and that that kind of became um, it was kind of a concept of my booking agent, who is also Jason's booking agent, 
who kind of wanted us. Jason was living in New, he had moved down to New Orleans a few years ago, seven or eight years ago. And she wanted us to meet and, you know, maybe collaborate on some things. Mm-hmm. And that, that little project has blossomed into a nice little, uh, been something that's been really nice. It's, it kind of, you know, I kind of started booking Jason when Walter was had a conflict with the trio. I put Jason on it. Mm-hmm. And people really, you know, Jason's a very dynamic performer. Not only is he a, an amazing harmonica player, but he's, he's, you know, very animated in his performance. And he, he's got very funny stories in between. And, and he's, got, he's got his own following in his own right. Oh, he's a star, man. He's he's a total star. He and he's he, as a player, is so much emotionalism. You know, that's it's he's so con- connected. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I mean, you know, we all know that that you know there are players and there are performers, and Jason is both. And um, he's he. So anyway, um, about six months ago, um, he was talking with Mike Zito about doing a new record. Mike Zito is, is an amazing guitar player who also has a label called Gulf Coast Records. Mm-hmm. And they are distributed by Alligator Records, and they're their own entity of, you know, um, of a label. Kenny Neal is on it. Mike is on it. A few other um, uh, pretty prominent names are on it. And um, uh, Mike wanted to put out a record for Jason, and he said, what do you got? And Jason said, I, w- I don't want to do it with my band. I want to do it with these guys. Nice. So we went in the studio around the beginning of May, and we cut a record. And it's going to come out sometime around the middle end of September, where this that trio is going to play French Quarter Fest. And what I'm going to do at Jazz Fest is do both of these trios with a lot of overlap. And basically, we're going to start out with Jason, with me, Jason, and Doug. We'll do a, maybe a tune or two. Then we'll bring Walter out to play with us. And then we'll switch drummers over to Wayne. And we'll keep Jason up there. And we'll play some of the stuff I play with Wayne and Walter. Oh, man. So it's going to be like a five-man uh, over-the-top rope battle royal. Exactly. Yeah, okay. It's basically the, the two <laughs> my my. The two universes are going to meet each other on stage, <laughs> nice. and and they kind of overlap anyway because you know like like last time that Walter and I played at the Maple Leaf, Wayne couldn't make it, so I got Doug. Right. Um, when when uh, Walter can't make the the trio gigs, I get Jason. Jason has come and sat in with us with the Walter trio. Walter has sat in with us with the with the Jane, Jason and Doug trio. So, I mean, there's so much overlap mm-hmm. and, and especially with the new record coming out, I really wanted to present both, both trios. So I'm going to do that. That'll be very cool. So now on all these organ trios, you're playing uh, left-hand bass, right? You're not kicking bass yeah. pedals, are you? No, no. I'm, I, I grew up as a piano player, so okay. I don't have that foot thing happening. I definitely have the left-hand thing though. And, right. Uh, you know, all the years of playing boogie woogie and stuff and all that style, it took a little adjustment to really kind of get the, the feel of it. But, you know, the whole hand separation and, you know, keeping that whole thing going, I, I do it on the lower manual or the lower keyboard on the organ. So Right. Now, the, like the B3, for people that don't know, the B3 is like a whole thing unto itself. Like there's organ players and then there's B3 players. Mm-hmm. It, it it's it's its own animal in every sense of it. It's an organ in only in the sense that it was created originally to replicate a pipe organ and to do it electronically. 
And originally it was made, uh, the Hammond guys made it um, so that it had a single speaker with it with two 12s and it was supposed to be um, pipes. And they are actually replicating that. And somewhere around the middle 40s, this was around the late 30s, somewhere around the middle to late 40s, a guy named Leslie came along and he had this this rotary speaker and there was a marriage between the, the Hammond B3 and the Leslie rotary speaker. And now when you see the organ, uh, the Hammond B3, 99.9% .9 of the times, it will always have the, the rotating baffle system of a Leslie speaker with it. Right. B3? Mm -hmm. B3? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sunk my battleship. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did not that see that be. one coming, Manny. Moving on to uh, you know s some of these these other incredible playing situations you've been in. Just just going over. I'm looking back. Uh, th this one, uh, the Solid Blues tour you did in t in 2007, where uh, oh, yeah, yeah. with Mavis Staples and Charlie Musselwhite and the North Mississippi All Stars. Who again, uh, uh, Luther Dickinson was a guest on on our podcast. So we're connecting more dots. Well, how that must have been a, t a terrific tour to be on, huh? Oh, it was killer. I mean, um, the way that the tour ran is I opened up the show and did like 30 minutes just solo piano. And then um, the Mississippi All-Stars came out and I joined them for like like two songs at the end of their set. They played for like 30 minutes. And then we took an intermission and the North Mississippi All-Stars came out and backed up Charlie Musselwhite for 30 minutes and then we all played with Mavis Staples for 45 minutes. Wow. And um, we traveled like that for seven or eight weeks on a bus. We started in Seattle and we ended in like New England. And it was amazing. I mean, you know, I sat, I sat on the bus next to Mavis and her sister Yvonne. Mavis um, never traveled without her. At that time, she would not travel without her sister Yvonne. And she was one of the Staples singers. And right. they didn't want it. There was some sort of problem with the biz, with the money business thing, with paying Yvonne. So she didn't want to sing. She just wanted to go out and and, and be be with Mavis. Be a chaperone. Right. Like she didn't road manage or anything. She just was there with Mavis. You know, it's like they they went they took care of each other, they went out together. Mavis is not going to travel without Yvonne and they did not want to pay Yvonne what Yvonne wanted. It was something like that. Okay. You know? That's why she didn't perform with her, hmm. but she was out there. She did the whole trip with us, everything, but she didn't want to perform. And I was like, you know, I, I was like, you're out here. Why aren't you doing it? She's like, well, they didn't get my money right. So I'm not doing it. I'm like, you're out here. You know, I mean, whatever, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to, you know, everybody does their business differently and I'm not going to criticize or say anything about it, but it was, a, it was an experience being around both of them. And then of course, Charlie and, and the all-stars, you know, I mean, they're all great guys. I, I, I mean, I love Charlie Musselwhite. Yes. You know, I mean, he's, he's an icon in the blues world. Um, his music, I, I mean, you know, for me, it's, uh, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I really loved it and I really loved playing with him and talking music with him. And, you know, the, the kid, the guys in um, 
the North Mississippi All-Stars, they were all sweet guys. They were all good guys. They were a little bit, um, you know, they had their thing. And they had, um, uh, you know, they had to have their guitar tech and roadie guy with them and stuff. It was a little different because mm. they they had, they were, you know, the young guys that had, had to have their, their little crew with them and everything, you know. Which was whatever, you know. I mean, that's that's how they want to spend their money. That's Everybody's fine. got their little thing, huh? Right, right. But they were they were great guys. They played phenomenally great. They're you know, yep. Luther is is an amazing guitar player and singer. And so, Joe, uh, let me ask you this question. Ask me a question. You're a keyboard player. You're a piano player. Yes, sir. After the gig, we've had so many so many musicians on this show. And the drummers always say they're the last ones to get laid because they have so much equipment to uh, pack up. How is it for a keyboardist? Well, okay, as far as equipment is concerned, when you bring in a B3 in, nothing <laughs> touches that, okay? <laughs> okay. That's a full-time job just moving that thing. Now I did mention that I uh, that that I was in a band with the first Mrs. Crown, and then that's the second Mrs. Crown. So there was only a brief period in between there where there was like you know a, a field for me to play on, and the guys that were doing that, you know, we all it it was all a draw. You know, I didn't really see that anybody got any more or less than anybody because of what they played. You know. Well, I want to get back to, uh, so, so, you know, Alan Toussaint, you mentioned, you know, great influence on all of us, a huge, you know, icon of New Orleans music, um, you know, to, just to show how, you know, well-respected you are a after Alan passed, uh, they chose you to, uh, to fill his chair on, on these all-star shows that they did in, in 2015 yeah. with Dr. John and Bonnie Raitt, Irma Thomas, that must have been such a thrill. I mean, you know, as a guy, a student of that style and. Well, I mean, you know, the whole, the whole experience was, was kind of like, uh, it was pretty mind blowing for me, you know, in a lot of ways. I, and yeah, I mean, I, I was a student of Alan's whole concept and everything. And, you know, we did it. We, we did one of those tours like I did with um, Mavis and muscle white and, and the all stars, um, we did one with uh, Alan, Nicholas Payton, and my trio with Walter and Russell. Mm. And we, we, that was only, that was shorter. It was about three and a half weeks, like 25 days or so. But I really got to know Alan on that. And it was unfortunate because it was just a few years before he passed. But um, we, we, we kind of stayed in touch. You know, you go out there and you do all these gigs with all these people and you know, you're like, uh, you, you, you do a tour for however long and everyone takes everyone's numbers and, you know, yada, yada, and you don't really see each other, right? Mm -hmm. Alan was totally different. He would come out, he'd come out and see me play all the time. Wow. I was playing piano at Ralph's on the Park like several nights a week back then. And uh, he'd, he'd stop in there all the time and just sometimes he'd just drive by I can see him craning his neck to see if I'm at the piano and he just would pull in and just stop in and, and just to say hello and see how I'm doing, you know? What a gentleman. Yeah. All, all the way. And sometimes he'd actually come in and sit down and listen to me play or, um, play, do a forehand piano with me. I mean, it was wow. amazing. It was amazing. I saw you play at Ralph's on the park. 
Yeah. Because I went there quite a while ago with my uh, in-laws, and my father-in-law was so feeble, but he liked to go out and have brunch, and he had to go to the bathroom. So I, he had his walker, and I made sure that he was getting there. And as we passed your piano, you said, I'm going to play a new song, or a, a new song and, you know, whatever. And I got him into the bathroom. You started playing the song, and he was so feeble, and it was so slow. I mean, we were in the bathroom for so long, and finally we left the bathroom, and you finished the song. The song so we never was already over. Yeah, <laughs> we never finished. I never heard the song <laughs> because it, it, it right. took so long for me to get him to the bathroom right. and stuff like that. Well, you know, you're talking about Alan. I was saying, you know, a real gentleman. Uh, what an elegant guy, man. You know, like Al, anytime I was around Al, Alan, he just always smelled great. He looked great. You know, the who's this? Alan, Alan who? Alan Tucson. You know, the oh, Alan Tucson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, he, he was. He used to drive around his Rolls Royce around my neighborhood. Had a, had a couple oh, yeah. of them. You know, I, yeah. Too. And there was this woman who lived down the street from me that his Rolls Royce was always parked. Kathy, uh, was it Kathy Sebastian? I don't know. It was on Ursuline and North White. You know that house? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Sure. I don't know who she was, but his his Rolls Royce was always parked outside there for days. Okay, yeah. sure. that's, that's, yeah. he's a friendly yeah. guy. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was the kind of guy, man. I'd see, you know, I'd see people walk up to him, and he would always give them like his full attention. And shake hands, pose for pictures, say thank you. He never had that diva thing going on, you right. know. Um, he was always like a gentleman and sweet to people. I'd see people just like fawning over him, like, "Oh my, your music, my prom, my wedding, my this, my that," and telling him stories. And he'd look him right in the eyes and smile and listen intently and give him give him that 2 minutes of like of his of his fullest attention you know yeah and i mean i see these younger guys or not even so much younger guys but all the these these guys come along with their attitudes and egos and they may be the most talented people in the world but no one touches alan you know i mean and here's a guy that's 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 a world class songwriter and piano player and he always gave people his attention and always treated them respectfully. Um, when I see these people out there that that act like they're that they're um, above it all, above you, and you're below them or better than you or something, and it's like, man, you just you're you're just so, so not. Whatever happened to his cars? Well, as far as I know, his daughter Allison has them, and. Oh. Um, she thinks she's better than us. Oh, <laughs> I don't think so, man. <laughs> no, Allison is a very sweet woman, and um, her husband Herman LeBeau was the drummer in Allen's band. And we did something, I think, about three years ago. We did an Allen tribute at Jazz Fest with, like, you know, Irma, Jimmy Buffett, Rita Coolidge. Um, I think Aaron might have come out. Aaron Neville might. David have come out. Lee Roth. David Lee Roth. There you and, go. Uh, yeah. But uh, they brought the car out, and wow. Allison drove it out. And that's the last time I saw the car. 
Well, um, uh, Joe, we're kind of on the downslope of the podcast, but I, I wanted to touch on a, a few artists that you've worked with just just briefly here. Um, you know, like names that jump out at me, like Bobby Charles. You made three records with Bobby Charles. Yeah, yeah. Just your quick reaction to Bobby Charles. Who's Bobby Charles? See you later, alligator. Walking to New Orleans. Uh, great, great Cajun songwriter. Swamp pop. Uh, Swamp Pop, I mean, he's he's written. And first of all, my experience with Bobby was um, he was managed by Gatemouth's manager, so he brought me in on the sessions. And Bobby was one of these guys that he couldn't tell you a single name of a chord or, like, what notes to play or anything, but he knew exactly what he wanted to hear. And to, I'll, I'll explain this to someone. Renee will understand this, but, like, he was he was we were playing a song and we went to an f chord and he said no that's not the right chord so we tried a d minor chord he was like that's it yeah and it, the difference it's a three note chord and it's a one note difference in it and and he was just like right on the money he knew exactly what he wanted to hear yeah. he had he didn't sit there and write towards any sort of form but everything made perfect sense when you when you listen to the lyrics and everything. Some it's like we did one song that was like I don't know it was it was like like a really weird amount of measures mm. or something, and and it it it, it was it kind of like felt awkward when we were learning it. He's like, no, that's not right. It doesn't go like that. We got to make it. We got to do an extra measure because it's it's got to fit like this. And then when we were listening back to it, it's like. Of course it has to be like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was one of those kind of guys that that really didn't know anything about like the music theory and the technical parts of it, but he he just knew what was right and he and it was all in his head. Right. And this is Alan Toussaint? No, this is Bobby Charles. Oh, Bobby Charles. Okay. Right. And it, it was it was a great experience. We did like a couple of sessions and the songs ended up on a, a couple of different records. Like it wasn't like um, like you do a session, like, you know, Renee, we go and we cut it, we cut 12 songs and they all come out on the next record. Bobby was just writing songs and we would go and record them. Okay. And, and they would show up on different, different, uh, releases. Well, so the, the next, uh, name, uh, uh, Ike Turner. Well, I never really played with Ike. I met Ike though. Oh, okay. Um, any, any uh, interesting, th- uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it was he was he was one of those guys. We were playing a Handy Award, and um, uh, it was um, Ike. Ike was playing there too, and we we played. It was with Gatemouth, and we played Okie Dokie Stomp. And and Ike might have come out and sit in with us, and, and I think he came out and sat in on guitar once with us. But um, this uh, this one story was like this happened to me twice in my life, where I walked off stage. And there was someone waiting for me and said, you know, um, the star wants to meet you because of what I played. And the first time it happened to me was with Dr. John. I walked off the stage. I was in the dressing room and the road manager came in and said, Mac wants to meet you. Wow. And I went in there and I talked to Mac and it was the first time I met him. And I was like, I was like Ralph Cramden, just <laughs> humming, 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 you know, and and he wanted to talk to me. I played. We played an opening song of Ray Charles's "Rock House." Uh-huh. Remember, I told you we would always open up with a couple of tunes. So I played right. "Rock House," and he really liked it. And he wanted to talk to me about it and talk to me about 
where that song's influence came from and all this other kind of stuff. And it was a great conversation. Nice. Same thing happened with Ike Turner. Huh. I got off stage and there was a guy said, Hey, were you just playing piano? And I said, yeah, Ike wants to meet you. <laughs> and I went back there to meet Ike Turner. Wow. Like, uh, good thing that was uh, Ike wants to beat you would be the worst thing. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I went back there and I said, um, you know, he wanted to talk about the fact that I was playing Boogie Woogie and he loved the way I played Boogie Woogie. And, you know, he had always been a fan. You know, he had that song Rocket 88 where he played Boogie Woogie on it. Yeah. And um, he he was we just talked for like five or ten minutes and he was a fan of Gate Mouse. He came out a couple of times. He sat in with us one time and he played guitar and, you know, it was he. You know, I, I kind of think he kind of got a little bit of a bad rap, you know, um, from the movie and everything. Right. Not to say that that he didn't do any of that stuff, but mm. but there was a lot of things that he did that was that was above and beyond that. And there's no reason why anyone should hit a woman or hit his wife, and that was all terrible and everything. But on the musical side, he there was he definitely had a lot of influence on a lot of people. He was a giant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was yeah. he was tremendous. So, um, so uh, there's a, a new PBS American Masters uh, show that just came out on Buddy Guy. I saw it the other night. So mm -hmm. fantastic. I, I can't recommend it enough. You know, Buddy Guy's always one of those just fantastic players. Um, did you do some playing with Buddy Guy? I haven't played with him. I have a couple of Buddy Guy brushes, though. Okay. Um, well, first of all, you know, um, I, I play with Kenny Wayne, and Kenny and Buddy do a lot of touring together as a double bill. So I, I know all the guys in the band, and I met Buddy, and, you know, we're all – we're out when you're out there doing two or three weeks playing together on every show, you everyone kind of knows everyone after a while. But my one, my one Buddy guy story was um, uh, Gay called me up one day, and he goes, uh, Buddy's playing at the House of Blues. Let's go. So I met. I went down to the House of Blues with at a Met Gate Mouth, and we went to go hear Buddy Guy. Uh -huh. And we're backstage, and Buddy Guy. We're standing on. You know how it is at the House of Blues in New Orleans. There's like that. There's not really like a backstage. You're kind of on the stage kind of thing. Uh -huh. So me and Gate are back there, and Gate. Um, uh, Buddy sees Gate, so he calls him out to play a song. And the first thing Buddy does is gives gate a big hug because th those guys knew each other and everything every time uh we were in in chicago buddy would come out and hear us and sit in with us and everything like that when yeah. we played buddy guys legends uh -huh. if he was in town buddy would always sit in with us and these guys you know they they knew each other and everything for sure and so so buddy gave gate like this big you know this big hug now, if anybody that knows, and Gate was wearing a sport jacket at the time, and if anybody that knows or knew Gate Mouth, he was, in his mind, he was a, a cowboy slash sheriff. Uh-huh. Okay? Which meant that whenever he came in New Orleans, he carried a gun. Right. And Buddy gave him the hug, and he felt the gun in his jacket. And I could see him open up the jacket to see the pistol, and he's and Buddy's... <laughs> The audience couldn't see it because it was like one of those things where Gate was standing, like facing Buddy, not the audience. He pulled open the jacket 
to see the gun. And, and when he saw the gun, Buddy like broke out laughing. <laughs> this is all on, on stage in front of the audience. Sure, I sure. knew exactly what was going on because right. I knew it was about the damn gun. Because right. Gate Mouth wouldn't go anywhere without a gun. Uh. I mean, one time they broke in his house and they stole all his guns. And he comes out of, out of the house. We're, we're loading up the bus because he always took a gun on the bus too. And we're loading up the bus, and he's got, like, this this double-barrel shotgun. That the barrel must have been, I don't know, about, like, three feet long or something. It was like it was like a cannon, you know? Okay. And he's, I'm like, what are you doing, Gabe? He's like, I'm not going anywhere without a gun. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't travel without a gun. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, right. That's all we need is for you to pull that gun out on the on the Canadian border, Gabe. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. We, we would always have to stop at a hotel or something rent a room for however many days we were going into Canada and so that we can put a gun in there. <laughs> you know? I mean, we'd always have to figure out something, you know, to ship the gun, to deal with the gun when we went into Canada. Oh, and, I mean, it was always an issue with that. But when he came into New Orleans, he, he was dead set on that. He will not come to New Orleans unarmed. And he walked out on that stage armed, the buddy guy like – Felt the gun and I opened up the jacket to see the damn gun. Um, and 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 all my years with him, I never saw him pull the gun. I never saw him do anything with the gun other than talk about it and say that he's got it on him. Uh huh. Yeah, it's just a security blanket. Sure, sure, sure. Exactly. Well, exactly. so um, so so now you're again you're you've you've been with Kenny Wayne Shepherd for a while. You guys have uh, dates on the books coming up here. Yeah, we do. We do. Who was Kenny Wayne Shepherd? Yes, briefly tell us. Well, Kenny Wayne Shepherd is um, he's a guitar player. He comes from uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. He was kind of like a child prodigy. He, his first recordings, I think he was like fifteen or sixteen or something. And, and back then, he was he was really kind of like trying to emulate Stevie Ray Vaughan. But man, he played like he was. I mean, he. You shut your eyes, and this kid was at 15 years old killing it. And yeah. he's um, he's had some success. Uh, he's had a few records go platinum. He's had one gold record. His biggest song was a song called "Blue on Black." Um, he's he's a blues guitarist, but he kind of writes roots rock music. You know, I think of Kenny Wayne as as a, a new act because he was very young when he started. But I, I was I realized he's he's been in the business for twenty five years at this point. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. He's he's forty. He's like forty three, I think, or forty four now, and he's been in the business like twenty five plus years. Right. He's got about ten records out, and he's a um, huge blue star. Yeah. But but he's 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 known in he's categorized in the blues world, but his music is more roots rock. He does play some blues, but it's like you know I mean uh, it's it's more like I wouldn't say pop, but it's more like roots rock. Right, you right. Uh, Manny, I would say if you're interested, Google a song called "Blue on Black." That was his biggest song. That's the song that the audience we can stop playing, and everyone in the audience is singing it. Oh, okay. Well, I saw that you you guys have uh, Chris Layton uh, from oh, from, yeah. from Stevie Ray Vaughan's band playing drums with you guys, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's got so cool. I mean, he's rock and roll hall of fame guy. Fuck I yeah. mean, everybody everybody in the band is kind of like got very long resumes. Uh, the trumpet player was on um, Conan O'Brien for twenty five years. He played with Bruce Springsteen. 
he was he played the Super Bowl with Bruce Springsteen. You know, I mean, it's like uh, the saxophone player was in, is in the Phantom Blues Band with Taj Mahal. He played with Little Feet, Bonnie Raitt. Play with Stevie Ray, you know. So let me ask you a question, Joe. I've never been a Springsteen fan. I never yeah. have. I think when he tries to rock, he sucks. But his ballads and slow songs are amazing. I really like like his album Nebraska. I think is one of the best albums ever made. That's a fan favorite for sure. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, but when Springsteen tries to rock. I just don't get it. I don't understand. So, what, so what's the question? The question is, <laughs> the question is, uh, you do like I like him? him? Yeah. Do you like him as a rocker or, uh, you know, as, you know, um, I, you know, let me put it to you this way. I, it's not something that I would, I would go out and, and seek out to hear his, like put the or music. Buyers, on yeah. You wouldn't buy it. Yeah. But, but I, I respect, uh, I think he's great. You know, I, I mean, by all means he's, he's, got a great show i mean he's you know there's there's a lot of bands like that that i'm i'm, I, I'm not like a, like a huge fan of but i think they're they're great bands like like you too great band what and, about the california raisins who are going to play jazz fest that wednesday oh uh, guys, the stones uh, i yeah. love the stones sure, sure yeah me too. yeah uh, jagger just turned 78 yeah. You know, yeah. And Charlie Watts, he's so old, his social security number is two. Yes, you told that, you told that joke on the last show. Yeah, well, I'm um, telling it again. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. I got that. Well, you know, I got to yeah. say, and we got to get out of here, uh, Joe, but I, I got to make one comment on Bruce Springsteen. Is uh, Again, I'm not a, a huge, like, I, I don't have any Bruce Springsteen records, but but uh, he came into the Maple Leaf one time when the Iguanas had our, our uh, Sunday night residency. And uh, he came and sat in with us. And... To stand behind that guy and see how much energy he he can put out just standing there with with a borrowed Telecaster, I was like, "Oh fuck, man! This is a different level of performance. It feels like suddenly you have a jet engine that uh, yeah. that you're standing behind." So yeah, it's it's undeniable. You know, it's there. That, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's like you know, I mean, he's 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 amazing. It's not really the kind of music that I like seek out, though. Like, I, like I, I might have one Bruce Springsteen record, but I mean, I've, I've got over a thousand records. You know, I mean. <laughs> well, uh, well, Joe, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. You've been a fantastic guest. Uh, you know, I know you're a busy guy, uh, like we all are, but uh, you know, you you can make time for the important things where you do appreciate it. Yeah, man. That. You know, thanks for having me, and uh, you know, I, I mean, I really appreciate. Uh, the opportunity to come out here and speak my piece. As I mentioned before, uh, in the troubled nation, we like to say, trouble never ends. But the struggle continues. Good night, Joe. Good night, guys. Thanks for having me. Good night. <laughs>